My name's Adrian. I'm one of the pastors here at Carnegie Free. Great to be with you here today. Pray you're well on this beautiful weekend. Are we blessed or what here? My word. What a gorgeous place. Beautiful weekend. So much to do in town yesterday. And uh, great to be here with you today. I've been reflecting a lot on the church's response to uh, a message series, which I have been told has stepped on a few toes, mine included. And uh, I've been really grateful for your response. I haven't really been aiming for your toes. I've been aiming for your hearts. And uh, that's the nature of God's Word. It aims at our hearts. It comforts us at times, and it afflicts us at other times. But I've been so encouraged by the church's response because what I've repeatedly heard from people is, yeah, I want to be challenged that way. I want to grow. I want to become a person of uh, deepness, a person of integrity, uh, a, a person of character, a person of goodness in Christ. And that's what we're after, is building a transformational community by growing in love with Christ and all people. And we recognize that we build a transformational community by starting right here, starting with ourselves. If we're going to make any difference in other people's lives, we first need to look to Christ and ask Him to make a difference in our lives. And so that's the aim in this series. One is greater than seven. Looking at the one who is Christ, who is greater than all of our weaknesses, all of our struggles, all of our temptations. And every one of us has something in our lives that should not be there. I can say that with confidence. Every single one of us in this room today and every single one of us in this stage today has something in our lives that we know should not be there. It's going to be different for all of us. I know that for some, it's, it's alcohol. There, there are some that uh, have moved way beyond having an occasional drink, which Scripture would allow us to do carefully, sure not to make someone else stumble, but Scripture would allow that on occasion. But there are many that have gone way, way beyond that such that they, they're feeling this need to have a drink every night or two or three, and they just know that shouldn't be there. For others, it's a spending habit that they don't just spend on occasion. They need to spend as often as they have free time and need to keep accumulating and acquiring. And this, this greed develops this covetousness for what we don't have and a hoarding for what we do have, and it becomes habitual, and we know it shouldn't be there. There are others that are addicted to lying, to be totally honest. We're not talking about this so much in the series, but uh, there's some that are just addicted to lying, and, and you speak so many half-truths and so many lies, you can't even begin to distinguish what is the truth from a lie anymore. And there are others that are addicted to food. And we talked about that in this series as well. That some just eat and eat and eat, and it can be grossly overeating, or it could be a sugar addiction, but some of us are just living to eat, as opposed to living for what God would really have for us and hungering for Him. And, and we, we want to release. We, we want something better. We know that this, this life in Christ is supposed to be so much better. We recognize there's something in our lives that just shouldn't be there. There are some that I've met, particularly young people today, that are so addicted to their devices, it's like they can't even have a conversation with people. You know, like they can't have intimacy in any relationship because they're on these things all the time and like they're on them so much as you're talking, you're wondering if their thumb's just going to fly off. 
And we just know that shouldn't be there. There are others that are addicted to approval, addicted to getting others to like them. And so prideful alliances develop and gossiping and jealousy and comparison, all because of a latent fear that I need to prove that I am somehow enough. And I got to tell you, last weekend, some people got freedom from that. Some people here in this room last weekend, as we talked about envy, experienced a freedom from that, perhaps for the first time in many, many years, as God would invite us to live before an audience of one, an audience of God alone. And this morning, we're going to talk about a beast of a temptation called lust. And uh, we just acknowledge that some are looking at pictures and looking at movies that they shouldn't be looking at. And they know this shouldn't be there in their lives. And it's a beast of temptation that that gets the better of many men and increasingly many women as well. And uh, we're going to go to the Scriptures and we're going to ask God for help on this deal that we know is hurting many of us and hurting people that we know and dishonoring the God that we love. And my hope in this message today is to give some people in this room hope that they have not had for a long, long time that freedom can be theirs in this area of very, very common weakness. And I promise you, this is not going to be a condemning message in any way. It's going to be a helpful message for those who would say, I have this anxiety welling up in me because I'm, I'm, I'm overwhelmed by this beast, or I have a depression that has come on me, or I realize that I am uh, acting in a way that is degrading or unfaithful, and, and I, I want freedom from those chains, and I don't know where to go. And, and I want to promise you today that there is hope. I want to promise you if you're in that spot or if you have kids who are in that spot, you have friends who are in that spot today with respect to lust, there is hope. We can overcome this. Even in an over-sexualized culture like ours, we can gain hope together And it begins with the Word of God, okay? That's my intention today, is to equip with the Word of hope that we all can begin to gain victory over something that we say should not be there. 1 Corinthians 10, verses 12 and 13 is a passage that we've looked at a couple times in this series already, and it's so instructive for us this morning as we begin looking at the remedy for lust. 1 Corinthians 10, verse 12 and 13 says this, Let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. You ever known someone who's really overconfident that they won't fall into that? Take heed. Take heed, the Bible says, lest you fall. Don't think that you're over something. Take heed lest you fall. Because no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to men and women. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Father in heaven, this is our prayer today, that you would grant us a newfound courage, a newfound strength to endure whatever temptations are coming our way. For some of us in the room today, it might be lust. But for others, there will be any number of different struggles, any number of different temptations. And here is your word telling us this morning that you offer this promise that there's a way out. This is a promise that you offer. 
that no matter the temptation which is common to us all, there is a way out. And so we ask, God, that you give us hope and you give us faith today to believe that. As we enter into your word and we seek to learn together, would you grant us your hope? We ask in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. If you take nothing else from this morning's message, please write down this. This is the big idea. You won't see it in your outline, but you will see it up on the screen. Whenever we are tempted, God will provide a way out. Whenever. Whenever we are tempted, do you believe what this scripture just said? God will provide a way out. Say amen if you believe that with me. Do you believe that with me? Whenever you are tempted, that whatever the temptation is, there is no temptation which is not common to many other people in this room. And whenever you are tempted, not occasionally when you are tempted, any time that you are tempted, God is strong and he is faithful to provide a way out for us. Now, God doesn't tempt us. We need to be able to say that definitively. God does not tempt us. Temptation comes from within ourselves or from the enemy of our souls, or from the culture around us. But God does not tempt us. He might test us, and he does test us at times in order to promote us, much as a teacher in school might test a student in order to promote that student from fourth grade to fifth grade. So also God sometimes tests us in order to promote us, but he does never tempt us. He is all good all the time. We are tempted by... Battles within ourselves and battles with the world and the enemy itself. And so what I want to do today is give some encouragement for how we can get out of the temptations, whatever they might be. It could be lust or any number of other temptations. Get out of the temptations when they come to us. Truths from God's Word. Five truths. I encourage you to take notes. This is not intended to be inspiration today, though hopefully it will be a little bit of that too. It's intended to be application. It's intended to be equipping for the battle. We all know someone who's in this battle. Many of us are, and we all know someone who is. I acknowledge that this topic is not easy, so I'm going to hit it the only way I know how, with two fists, okay? Two fists is how we're going to hit it. Here it is. Number one, it's not a sin to be tempted sexually. That's the first thing that we need to say. It is not a sin to be tempted sexually. Did you know that? It isn't. It's not a sin to have the desire It's not a sin to have temptation. Jesus himself was tempted, and he did not sin. Look at Hebrews chapter 4 up on the screen. We do not have a great high priest. The great high priest is Jesus. We do not have a great high priest who is unable to sympathize with us in our weaknesses, but one who was tempted in every way just as we are, yet he was without sin. Okay, so he was tempted in always just as we are, yet he was without sin. And so we extrapolate from that that so also we can be tempted and yet not fall into sin. It's not a sin to necessarily, it's not necessarily a sin to be tempted. We can resist temptation before it turns into a sin. So maybe you have an alcohol habit and you recognize you have this habit toward alcohol. And for some reason, you put yourself in harm's way. You go to a party with a group of acquaintances. And at that party, someone quickly offers you a beer. Someone quickly offers you a shot. And you shouldn't have been at that party, but there you are. And 
uh, something comes to your mind, oh, I have a friend I can call to get me out of this situation. I'm going to call my friend from my life group, and I'm going to ask him to come pick me up from this, this party so I don't do something that I later on regret. Did you sin? No, you were tempted, and you weren't wise to go to that party. But you didn't sin. Now, you take heed from that lesson so that you can stand, verse 12 says, you take heed and you don't go to those parties where you would be tempted again in the future. But that was a narrow victory, thanks be to God. Or how about this one? You are driving your car and you see a hunking man with a six-pack of abs and his shirt off and he's running down the street and you look at that man and you say, Woo, I kind of like him. Ladies. Or fellas, you're driving your car and you see Miss Yoga Pants running across the street and she's running and running, she's looking real good and you, you, you say to yourself, I better uh, turn around and be sure that that hunking man got across the street just safe. I better turn around the car and be sure Miss Yoga Pants is all right. Well, you probably sinned, Okay to take that second look and then turn around and go check on her, go check on him, is to take a step too far into the second look. But if you just noticed that he was attractive, if you just noticed that she was attractive and you left it at that, did you sin? No, you didn't sin. Okay, you might notice that so-and-so is attractive and that's fine, but to take that second look is what moves you into the category that Jesus warns us against called lust. This is so important that we recognize because if we don't recognize that it's not a, a sin to fall into, or that, that to be tempted is not a sin, then we're constantly going to be walking around with false guilt. And false guilt, as it turns out, is a terrible motivator. False guilt actually does not really help us. In fact, it's a frequent wicked, wicked tool of the enemy that is used to condemn us unnecessarily. So constantly feeling guilty doesn't help those who have already been forgiven. Again, you hold on to this principle that it's not a sin to be, to be tempted, and that's so important for us to understand for these two different reasons. When we are constantly feeling guilty, what do we do? We indulge a little bit more. When you're constantly feeling guilty, what you end up doing is taking in more sugar, Taking in more simple carbohydrates, taking in more, more pornography, taking in more spending. You, you constantly indulge even more. It turns into a cycle when you're feeling guilty. That's the first reason. The second reason that it's so important not to equate temptation with sin is that particularly in this area, we start to equate sex with something that is filthy. That's very dangerous. We start to equate something that God has given with filth. The sociologist and Christian evangelist Tony Campolo has been fond of noting, we Christians speak about sex as a dirty, filthy subject to be saved only for the one that you love the most. That's the way Christians frequently speak of sex. It's this dirty, filthy subject that's only to be saved for the one that you love the most. That's no way to speak of something that God has given and then we, see it, we treat it as taboo, and we fail to recognize that this is a wonderful gift given to us by God for the means of procreation 
and enjoyment in marriage and oneness in marriage for a specific confine, for a specific context. And all of God's gifts are intended for us in a specific context and not in other contexts. Again, if we treat it as taboo, if we treat it as filthy, it just produces more guilt and more shame and more spiraling. So I'm not going to do that. Whenever the Bible addresses this matter, I'm not going to treat it as filthy. Instead, we are going to boldly proclaim that God desires, God invites us to something that is far better than what this world offers. That's the way we're going to treat it here. So let me just state again, it is not a sin to have desire. Number two, what you feed grows, what you starve dies. It's true about anything in life. Whatever you feed grows, whatever you starve ends up dying. French General Napoleon Bonaparte said, an enemy marches on its stomach, so starve the enemy. Every enemy starves when the food supply is cut off. So likewise, in order to defeat sexual temptation, you need to cut off the enemy. You need to stop feeding it. Let me just take a moment to explain what happens to the brain when we lust. What happens to the brain when we feed the brain with pornography. In your brain, you have these neurotransmitters called dopamine. You heard of dopamine? Dopamine is this little molecule that's like the gotta have it molecule. Okay? You get a little hit of dopamine, and it's this molecule that says, give me some more, give me some more, give me some more. It's the gotta have it molecule that fuels anticipation and expectation and a desire for more. And what your brain does is it rewards you with this high, this buzz, a satisfaction in looking at what you know you should not look at it. And over time, pornography, do not miss this, literally changes the shape of the brain. Remember those old commercials? This is your brain and this is your brain on drugs. Remember those? That drugs literally change your brain. Pornography does the exact same thing. It changes your brain. Much like an addict's brain, a heroin addict's brain is changed, so also habitual presentations of pornography to your brain change the makeup of your brain. It feels harmless in the moment. It feels good in the moment. But it turns into these chains. It turns into this prison cell, an addiction in which the brain is literally modified. Now, here's the really good news for those who are stuck. It's called neuroplasticity. God has made our brains in such a way that they can be rewired. They can be rebooted. They are plastic in a way. They have a neuroplasticity to them that they can be changed such that new habits can emerge and then our brains can be rewired from that addicted place to a non-addicted place. Can I get an amen to that? This is such good news that God chose to make our, our brains this way. He's the God of the second chance, the third chance, the fat chance, and no chance at all. He will give you another chance. He will give you another chance. And he does it even to the level of our brains to, to, to rewire things as we think on what is right, as we think on what is true. So scientists have affirmed for us the power of positive thinking. And positive thinking kind of gets a bad rap today because of the way it's communicated in the, in the media. But, but Paul said to think about the things that are right and true, didn't he? 
Didn't he? And you think about the power of exercise to overcome some of our testosterone urges. That's very, very beneficial. Think about what Paul says in Philippians chapter 4. He says, finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, dwell, sit, think, meditate, chew, on those things. Chew on what is good. And then the God of peace will be with you over the course of time because your brain can be rebooted (laughs) such that all of a sudden you're thinking on the right things instead of the wrong things. You're starving what is bad and it starts to die and you're feeding what is good and it starts to grow. Now do a little bit of audience participation with me. Can you think of someone in the Old Testament who had the boldness to save himself I am above reproach. I'll give you another hint. God said of him, this is the most righteous man in all the earth. Who was it? It was Job. What what made Job the most righteous man in all the earth? That he would say to himself, I am above reproach. Well, there are many things. He shared his, his, uh, his financial blessing with the needy. He cared for the poor. He was very generous. Uh, He was a father to the fatherless. He was helpful to widows. Instead of Job, he made the widow's heart sing. Don't you love those words? Uh, He was careful to provide for his family. He persevered under great suffering. But he also said of himself this in Job chapter 31. He said of this. He said of himself this way. I made a covenant with my eyes not to look lustfully at any girl. This is part of what made Job righteous. He made a promise with his eyes. I make a promise today with my eyes as I wake up today. I'm not looking lustfully at any girl. So you can imagine Job, he, he just said, uh, there's a lovely woman. I am not going to ogle at her. Ladies, amen. I mean, this is what women want, to be treated with respect and with dignity, not as objects, not to be degraded, not to be ogled at. He made that kind of covenant with his eyes. Or perhaps he, he witnessed something. He said, oh, I, I could be tempted by that. I'm going to run in the other direction because I've made a promise with my eyes not to look at that which does not belong to me. Jesus, of course, said the same exact thing when he says, if your eye causes you to sin, gouge it out. He's not saying he wants you to go into heaven with maimed body parts. That's not what he's saying. He's saying, treat it seriously. Hate what God hates. Love what God hates. I mean, we treat things um, like it's no big deal. We should hate what God hates. Hate what God hates. And so if your eye causes you to sin, gouge it out. He's speaking in a hyperbole to say, it's a big deal. Take it seriously. It's a really big deal because it'll be... Uh, your downfall if you're not careful. So make a covenant with your eyes. It's going to be different for all people the way you starve your eyes. When I check out of the supermarket, for example, I make a promise not to look at People magazine because it just, it's kind of just softcore porn, to be honest. I, I mean, on my computer, I put the, the controls on high. Super duper extra fantastic high because it's that serious. And it comes at you. 
When I go to the gym, I pray before I go to the gym because there's lots of ladies in yoga pants. Ladies, you, you make a covenant not to go out to lunch with a man who's not your husband. Seriously. We should have these kinds of boundaries because an emotional affair is a big, big deal. And lust is an equal opportunity tempter. It comes to both men and women alike. Whatever it is for you, establish certain boundaries. That's wise. I, I can hear some people say, that sounds really legalistic, Adrian. No, it's wisdom. It's not legalism, it's wisdom. It, it's not arbitrary, it is intentional. We intentionally make certain boundaries, and it's going to be different for different people, but you intentionally make certain boundaries to guard against what is common to all people. Now, I think we're wise to just acknowledge for young people today that it's harder today than it's ever been. Lust has always been an issue across all generations. Infidelity has always been an issue, but in the past, it was treated with shame. Today, it's shameless. Today, it's trivialized. Today, it's treated as no big deal. And again, women are degraded. Where are the men to stand up for the women who are being degraded? I was talking with our, our family and worship uh, ministry pastor, uh, Ken Sundberg, about this a few weeks ago. And he, he had the most insightful comment. I wrote it down. He said, I used to think, I used to think that I would need to teach my kids how to avoid pornography. Now I realize I need to teach my kids how to navigate through it. Because this is the world that we live in now. It's not just enough to avoid it. You also have to teach your kids how to navigate through it because it comes at you even when you're not looking for it. Right? I mean, men, when we were growing up, you had to go out of your way to find it. Kids today don't have to go out of their way to find it. It comes to them. I don't want to quote the stats at length today because they're so depressing except to say that in a 2016 Barna and Josh McDowell survey of young adults ages 13 to 24, the following sins were ranked as worse than watching pornography. Not recycling and overeating. Are now ranked as young people across religious faiths, including Christian, as worse than watching pornography. I'm not saying we shouldn't recycle. I think we should. I'm not saying that we shouldn't overeat. I think we shouldn't overeat. But pornography is so much worse in terms of what it does to you and what it does to degrade other people. And in this day of equal opportunity temptation, once again, 72% of regular pornography viewers are men, which means a full 28% of regular pornography viewers today are women. It is a temptation, it is a sin that has been normalized, but I just want to encourage us once again not to normalize what God hates. We bounce our eyes, we get in the habit of bouncing our eyes, what doesn't belong to us, starving the eyes against the sexual impulse. That's the beginning of taking God's side in this battle. Now I gotta say, it's not enough today, given the prevalence, to only starve the food supply. We also have to feed ourselves with the right things. So here's number three. We starve ourselves far from the food supply. We flee from foolishness, but we do so with trusted friends. It's so critical that we flee from foolishness with trusted friends. When you're tempted, God will provide a way out. And as 
is oftentimes the case, he provides a way out with a few other men or women who are with us in the battle. I gotta tell you, I've had a number of friends over the years who I could go and talk to about anything. Nothing was taboo. I had guys in my life groups over the years that I could go to and talk to them about any subject, and they didn't look at me with shock. They said, let's, let's talk about that, let's pray about that. And that provides a refuge of safety, which grants us courage to move forward because we know we got a couple other guys who are comrades with us in the battle. Look at 2 Timothy 2.22. And let's read this verse out loud from the screen. It's so powerful. It says, Flee from the evil desires of youth and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace along with others who pursue the Lord out of a pure heart. Really interesting what that passage is saying. It's saying we run from certain things, but if we only run from those things, that won't be enough. We also have to fill our heart and fill our mind with other beautiful things to replace those temptations. So we run away from certain things and we fill ourselves with righteousness, with goodness, with thinking about the right things with love for women and men made in the image of God, with peace, and we do it with others who are likewise pursuing the Lord out of a pure heart. I love Joseph's story in the book of Genesis when he was tempted by Potiphar's wife. Joseph was second in command, um, and Potiphar was the pharaoh in Egypt. And Potiphar's wife kept on coming to Joseph. And she was a beautiful, attractive woman coming to him each night saying, uh, come have me, come have me. And, and he, he doesn't trifle. He doesn't flirt with Potiphar's wife. He doesn't say to himself, how wonderful does this make me feel that I am um, seen as handsome by this beautiful woman? Let, let me just sit in this feeling for a few minutes. No, he ran. It said Joseph fled. He ran in the opposite direction. And he ran toward God. You flee from the evil desires of youth. You flee from foolishness, but you got to do it with others. I am convinced that many of us would gain victory, increasing victory over our greatest temptations if we just had this one thing. Trusted Christian friends. Those three words. If we had trusted Christian friends who we could be totally authentic with, be it in our small group or in Forge or in a women's group of some kind, a young mom's group, whatever it may be, in which we're putting aside this tendency to go through the motions and instead we're honestly pursuing the things of Christ together, praying for each other and caring for each other, hating what God hates and loving what God hates, it, it, it would help us in the battle. Someone who knows you full well with all of your temptation and yet still loves you, even when you fail. There's a great power in that. And again, if you don't have that, please let us know. And by this fall, we'll get you in a life group. We'll get you in a small group of some kind. A lot of our life groups are not meeting this summer. Uh, some of them are, but then they start to meet again in the fall. I would just say, as an aside, uh, keep in touch with your life group over the summer. Three months is too long. We need our friendships, don't we? But uh, life groups really uh, redevelop in earnest in the fall, and we'll get you into a life group where you can begin to develop these friendships. 
because these temptations are common to us all. So again, number one, it's not a sin to be tempted. What you feed grows and what you starve dies. That's number two. Number three, you flee with trusted friends. And number four, Scripture is more powerful than any of your temptations. I really hope you believe that today. I hope you have faith to believe with me today that Scripture is more powerful than any of your temptations. Whenever you're tempted, God will provide a way out. And commonly, the way that God provides a way out for us in the midst of our temptations is nothing less than the sword of his word because he is committed with us to our holiness. God is committed to our holiness. So I don't know what God's way of escape is going to be for you, but I'm sure it will include the word of God. And it's going to be different for different people. Uh, Your way of of escape might just be that you find yourself in a... Um, a compromising situation, and the Holy Spirit comes to you in that, and he convicts you to get out of there, just to flee. That might be your way of escape, and we give thanks to God for that. Or it might be that your way of escape is uh, you're in this pattern, and all of a sudden uh, you you realize, I need to get in a life group, and a life group of friends could be your way of escape, or uh, trusted accountability could be your way of escape. I've listed a number of resources on the back of your outline today that can be helpful for those who are struggling in this area. Every woman's battle, every man's battle, a number of others, a number of websites. There are a number of Bible passages on here that could be your way of escape. We have a great ministry that should be listed on here, but it's not. It's called R3. And R3 is for those who are going through various addictions or hang-ups, various uh, struggles. And it meets on Monday night at 6.30. And that could be God's chosen way of escape for you. Others might need a counselor or intense rehab that's reached a level of depth for you that you need to get away from it for a while. You need some distance from this for a while. And that might be God's chosen means of escape for you. I don't know how God will do it, but whenever we are tempted, the Bible promises God will provide a way out. And for all of us, I believe at least part of it will be the sword of his word. I love the way the message paraphrase of the Bible puts it when talking about the power of the word of God in 2 Timothy chapter 3. It says, every part of scripture is God-breathed and it's useful in one way or another. Hear this. Showing us truth. Exposing our rebellion correcting our mistakes, training us up to live God's way. Through the word, we are put together and shaped up for the task that God has for us. Isn't that beautiful? Every word of God is breathed in by God's spirit himself. And it's useful for teaching us and correcting us and training us and shaping us up for the various challenges that we have. It is authoritative over our lives and it helps us in our times of weakness. So here's a possible application for you, no matter your area of temptation. Identify an area of temptation and then find all the verses in the Bible related to that area. You can go to the back of your Bible and the back of many Bibles have a concordance and you can look look up all those verses related to that word. So it could be lying, it could be truthfulness, it could be lust, it could be greed. Again, any of the different temptations that we've identified. And you look up the various synonyms of that word in your concordance in the back of your Bible. You go online and you look at even a bigger concordance 
and you spend a month studying that subject for a full month, 10 or 15 minutes a day on that subject. And as you go, you'll probably identify a number of verses that really pop off the page for you and seem to speak to your heart. And as you identify those verses, I encourage you to write them down. And I encourage you to memorize them. You might identify three or four or five verses that are particularly helpful for you in your battle that speak to your heart and memorize them. I write them down on note cards and I keep them in my pocket and I'll spend five or six minutes reading and rehearsing those note cards every day. And I hear some people saying, oh, Adrian, I don't have time for that. You have no idea how busy I am. Listen, we all have the same amount of time, don't we? We all have the same amount. I'm busy too. But you prioritize what matters to you. And we need to prioritize goodness. We need to prioritize integrity. Prioritize becoming people of deep character. And it is, wouldn't it be worth it to spend maybe 10 minutes a day if God could grant you freedom out of that 10 minutes a day? Wouldn't that be worth it? My, my word, to get freedom from a current area of temptation through 10 minutes a day, I'm telling you, that's possible. When I'm about to look at what I should not look to, certain verses just go off in my mind. Job made a covenant with his eyes not to look lustfully at a girl. I also have made a covenant with my eyes. Certain verses just go off in my mind. Or 1 Corinthians 6, Adrian, your body is a temple, the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God. Adrian, you are not on your own. You've been bought with the price. Therefore, Adrian, honor God with your body. Or 2 Timothy 2, Adrian, flee the evil desires of youth and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace along with others who pursue the Lord. Out of a pure heart, so you're tempted too much, Adrian, pick up the phone and call your brother up. You see, the Word of God is like a time bomb that is made to detonate in our souls, detonate in our minds at the moment of need. God is faithful with His Word if we have previously meditated on it or memorized it. If we've previously done the hard work, then God will apply it. That's the Holy Spirit's job. Our job is to memorize it. Our job is to study it. Our job is to meditate on it. The Holy Spirit's job is then to apply it at the moment of need. Do you understand that? Okay, th th that's our job. We, we study it. Then the Holy Spirit comes and he applies it to us right when we need it. God's word is so powerful, far more powerful than any of our temptations. And then finally, God's grace is so much greater than any of your sins. One is greater than seven. Christ is so much greater than all of our temptations. And I want to just close with this, that many in this room feel defined by our failures, be it in this area or some other area of weakness. And I want to tell you that if you feel defined by that today, that's not from God. God does not wish to define you by that. He wishes to convict you and turn you toward the cross from which there is total forgiveness and cleansing. I love the word that Tim read for us a few minutes ago, that if we sin, of course we all will. And we all do. But that very passage from 1 John 1 goes on to say this. If we confess, if we sin, yes, we all will. But if we confess our sins, then our God, know this, our God is faithful and our God is just. And he will 
forgive our sins, and he will cleanse us from every act of unrighteousness. And if you want to know a promise from God, (laughs) here's a promise from God. Here's another one of those great promises from God. He is the God of second chances. He will forgive all of your sins. He will cleanse you from all of your sin, from all of your failure, and he will give you a second chance. And so you just look up to the cross, and as we take communion, you live out You pledge today to live out of the victory that Christ has already won for you from the cross. We live from his victory, from the reality that his grace is greater than our sin, and we live out of his grace every single day. We say, God, would you give me your grace today, enough grace just for today, and then he will give us the desire, then he will give us the courage to flee the evil desires of youth. He will give us the courage to starve our enemy and feed what is good. He'll give us the courage to call friends. He'll give us courage to live in grace and find increasing victory. Do you believe that? I believe that for you. I want to pray that for you as we take communion together this morning. Would you pray with me? God in heaven, how thankful we are that your grace is far greater than our sins. Many of us do feel defined by our failures. And failure, particularly in this area, leads to shame. And so many people in the room right now feel some shame around this issue. And so we thank you, Lord, for the power of your word, which promises us this morning that you are faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And so the most natural thing for all of us to do at this very moment is to extend our hands to you, to look at the cross and say, Lord Jesus, would you forgive me? And for some of us today, that'll be lust. But for others of us, it'll be any number of other temptations, any number of other sins that we've engaged in this past week. It could be judgmentalism. It could be a critical spirit. It could be greed. It could be lying. It could be another habit of some kind. I don't know what it is for my friends in this room, but all of us could confess to something. And so we look at the cross. And we remember that word, that if we confess, you are faithful and you forgive. And so, Father, as we take this bread and we prepare to take the cup, we receive your abundant forgiveness today, thanking you, Lord, for forgiving us as far as the east is from the west. And we ask, God, for a newfound courage, a newfound strength to follow you today. In Jesus' name, we pray together. And all God's people say, amen, amen. I'm going to ask our deacon and deaconess team to come forward at this time, and they'll lead us in communion. And we'll leave this verse up on the screen, and in just a moment we'll partake together.